0: There's two AI stories in the first half hour of the Wintrust Business Lunch today. One by Aki Ito at Business Insider has the headline, AI Helps Unskilled Employees on the Job Hurts Experienced Workers. The past few months, Aki writes, I've been mulling over a series of studies economists have conducted on the value of artificial intelligence in the workplace. How much they wanted to know does AI help white-collar professionals to do their job. The productivity gains they've observed are substantial. AI is clearly making us better, faster workers. The numbers have prompted AI optimists to predict an economic boom and AI pessimists to worry about the future of fewer jobs. Behind those numbers, buried a little deeper, is the finding that is most interesting. The question isn't how much AI helps, but Who and why AI, the studies indicate, is making us more productive, but in a weird way. It's not helping everyone get better at their jobs. It's mostly turbocharging workers who are bad at theirs while doing little to aid or even hindering those who are already productive to begin with. AI, in other words, is raising overall productivity by narrowing the gap between high performers and low performers. It's equalizing white-collar work, a vast swath of the economy that has always been predicated on the assumption that some people will inherently be much, much better at their jobs than others. And by the way, that also means much, much richer or better compensated. They say that it's long been known that there is a group of elite lawyers and there's a group of people at the bottom of the legal ranks who don't make as much money. And sometimes it's skill or resources, but AI will narrow that gap. One wonders, by the way, in this article, if that's a good thing or bad thing should we that is maybe reward people who are better faster smarter on their own or should we create technology like ai that narrows the gap so that the person who hasn't worked as hard or isn't as naturally talented will catch up and just one other note here it says as an analogy if you give everybody a cane it'll speed up the slowest walkers the most But it won't do much for Usain Bolt. It might even slow him down. AI seems to disproportionately help those with fewer skills and less experiences. If AI boosts the productivity of low performers, putting them on equal footing with the superstars, how is that going to change professional work as we know it? One last sentence. One possibility is AI could help reverse America's Growing Chasm of Income Inequality. It's an interesting piece at businessinsider.com. Bree Fowler is a senior writer at CNET. CNET.com is where you find her stuff. And we just found her on the phone. Hi, Bree. How are you? Good. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. It's funny. I just read a story from Business Insider about how the evolution of AI is actually going to lift the least among us, the workers who are maybe not the best, and help them catch up with the workers who are it'll benefit maybe those people making less money or with fewer skills more than it will be people on the top of the food chain does that sound about right to you brie
1: i mean i don't know if i necessarily agree with that because i see ai is replacing a lot of low-skilled jobs um, where you know when i talk to people especially in the tech and the digital security industries They're going to use AI, but they have to up their game because AI is going to handle a lot of the low-hanging fruit that entry-level people used to do. So, you know, it can go both ways.
0: When you see a chatbot on a web page and you're trying to get some help from a human being, do you use that or do you hold? How do you reach out to services like that?
1: You know, it depends. Um, Sometimes I'd rather deal with the chatbot if I have something very easy and simple to deal with you know but if it's a complicated kind of thing or maybe i'm trying to cut a deal with my cable company for a lower rate i'm definitely going to go for
0: a an actual person yeah right but i think well i know for a fact when i first saw those boxes hey can we help you just type it in here i thought that was a dedicated team of human beings probably (laughs) i'm don't laugh uh, probably in India, and they were really good, and they would be able to click, 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 and it was just a more efficient way. But maybe all along, and especially now, it's not a human being, is it? I'm just talking to yep. a computer program.
1: It's really hard to tell sometimes. Um, you know, and I think, may, you know, I used to think that maybe these were powered by people overseas because, you know, maybe it wasn't the best uh, English language skills, but, you know, then again, um, Who knows, (laughs) especially pre-Chat GPT and, you know, the the rise of of generative AI, Um, you know, the tech has definitely gotten better, whether it's better than actual people when it comes to certain things, Um, you kind of have to roll the dice on that.
0: Well, speaking of rolling the dice, and this is not why we invited you on, but just let me hear myself say this, and maybe somebody else will nod in agreement. You know, it's really frustrating. So I was on the phone the other day with a financial company that manages our 401k, and mm-hmm. I had a question about what was going on. And the voice prompt said, um, just say why you're calling. And I thought, if I knew why I was calling, I wouldn't be calling. I have—I don't even know what my problem is here. And so she said, you can say something like, rollover account, or what's my pension value? And I thought, no, I don't need to know that. So then I say something snarky, like, why don't you just, you know, give me a ha- I don't know what the hell the problem is. Give me some help here. Hello, help. And uh, I nothing happens, you know, so then you hope eventually you can find a human being. But I'm not thoroughly satisfied, let's put it this way, with the voice activated or the printed uh, help that I'm getting.
1: I've definitely had problems with those voice-activated things, especially with my credit union, with my bank. Yeah. Um, you know, when I've been traveling overseas and I just need to let them know that I'm overseas and to please not shut off my ATM card, Yeah. Um, there's no automated response for that. They gave me my balance. They gave me yep. my last transactions. Yep. But. You know, can I get an operator or customer service? Uh, I guess that's too much to
0: ask. I traveled overseas last year, and they said you don't even need to do that anymore. If you're taking your visa card overseas, you don't have to tell them. And I I hesitate to say that on the radio now because I'm not sure I'm remembering that correctly, but it's it's a lot more automated than it used to be. Uh, yeah,
1: I, I've had a, I've had a good experiences with credit cards, but when I'm dealing with my, I still use my very folksy low-tech credit union back in Michigan because they give me great financing rates on things, yeah. and they, they, they want to know if you're leaving the country.
0: Let's talk about Google and this Gemini project. What is that?
1: Well, Google is boosting its AI prowess. Um, they're launching Project Gemini, which is an AI model that, you know, like we've been talking about, is trained to behave more human-like. And and this is going to kind of boost the debate about the technology's potential and promise and and the dangers in there, too. Um, Google's BART has taken a lot of flack for being kind of useless, especially compared to ChatGPT, which is arguably, you know, a a much smaller company but the market leader in this kind of thing. Uh, So this is their way to kind of jumpstart things and get, in a more usable form on their phones and other technology.
0: How do I access this, or will I?
1: Well, you're first going to see it on the Pixel 8 Pro um, and, you know, their new smartphones. Eventually, it's going to roll out into other uh, services, but, you know, it'll let you do um, automatic replies on messaging services like WhatsApp, Um, and eventually, yeah, there's going to be a lot more down the road, but right now it's just more of a test audience.
0: Meta is, or new, new, new the state of New Mexico is suing Meta. Why?
1: Well, it, it go, comes down to kids again. Uh, they're not the first state to file suit against Meta over, you know, Facebook and, and Instagram and everything from concerns about child, you know, sex abuse, things like that, and then just the general addictiveness of these kinds of platforms when it comes to kids. What, what's interesting with New Mexico is that rather than join the 33 state lawsuit currently uh, pending against Meta, they have their own and it comes after they kind of did this online sting operation where they set up a uh, dummy accounts, uh, basically, you know, just to see who would target what looked like to be underage children.
0: And that worked? Did that net catch some people?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of scary. I, they they set up these accounts that decoys that look like kids under 14, and they say that they've, they've received sexually explicit images um, and, you know, uh, Messages encouraging these children right, <laughs> to right. provide their own sexually wow. explicit images, and you know, as a parent, that is really scary.
0: Wow. Um, by the way, do you know much about the state of Montana's TikTok suit, or was it was it Utah? Uh, wasn't there a state that was going to ban TikTok? But I thought that was in the courts.
1: That yes, it is Montana, and as far as I know, that is still tied up in the courts. That that may make it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Montana, the legislature there voted to ban TikTok. Uh, the question is, how do you do that from a technical logistical standpoint? Um, you know, uh, the internet and even telecom. You know, crossing state lines, things like that. It's it's really hard to put something like that in place on a state level.
0: Tomorrow, we're going to talk to Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, and I'll ask him about, among other things, high-speed rail. He wants to promote rail and money that's coming from the administration to places like Chicago, including um, high-speed rail in Nevada, right? Isn't there money going that way?
1: Yeah, the Biden administration has allocated uh, $3 billion to a privately owned route that will travel between Las Vegas and Los Angeles, and another $3.1 $3.1 billion that's going to go to a California public effort to put rail between San Francisco and L.A. Um, you know, trains like this, they, if you travel in Europe, they're, they're all over the place. Um, America, we have Amtrak. <laughs> and, you know, I, I take trains a lot in the Northeast, and, and I have taken them to Chicago when I lived in Michigan. And we're just not up to par with the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I've I I, uh, I I've traveled those, lo- those lines myself. Um, good to know, and always good to hear you. Brie, thanks for your time today, and let's visit again next week.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Brie Fowler is a senior writer at CNET. Michael Miller, the economics professor now at Western Washington University, and a professor emeritus from DePaul, where we knew him for many years, is on the phone line with some good news and some bad news. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm doing real well, John. I enjoy very much our time together. As do I, and I know our listeners do, too. And it wouldn't be a conversation without you, Mike, unless there was good news and bad news. So give us the yin and yang on the inflation front.
2: Oh, you know, here's, of course, the whole goal of the Federal Reserve's um, aggressive, tight money policy is to remove inflationary expectations from the economy, which would ultimately remove inflation from the economy, get it down to its, its 2% target. And we do see some uh, movement in that way in general, uh, several different indicators of inflation measured several different ways, at several different uh, you know different levels, all are pointing towards or uh, moving down or moving towards the 2%. <clears throat> One area that is moving more quickly than it has in the past is actually um, durable goods. And see, because what has been happening is the inflation rate is still positive. It's just been going down, which economists call disinflation. So prices are still rising, but they're rising more and more slowly each and uh, every month. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to durable goods, like furniture, appliances, electronics, and so forth, the prices are actually falling which would be a sort of deflation for that particular area. And economists are hoping that this will help us move more quickly towards this 2% um, goal that the Fed has, and that way the Fed can then ease off on the interest rate hikes that they've been doing. But that may be portending uh, bad news. And the bad news is that the most volatile sector of the economy is consumer durables. The things like furniture, appliances, automobiles, and so forth are things that you don't buy when you don't have any confidence in the future or you're starting to lose your job or you're concerned about losing your job. So this decline in prices of these particular goods could be a sign that uh, spending on those areas is weakening enough that we may be on the verge maybe of going into a recession because of this decline in consumer spending. So the good news is inflation will go down. The bad news is we may go down right into a recession.
0: Well, is a recession even a soft one, a soft landing? Is that essentially the goal, or is that just the consequence of trying to get inflation at 2%? Uh, Well put. Uh, That
2: is actually a side effect or a consequence, um, uh, the the reduction in, say, the the rise in unemployment we're seeing. Now, the goal of the Fed, as you stated, is something called a soft landing, Uh, an economy that is overheating where prices are rising. Um, The Fed then implements what is called tight money to try to slow down the inflation. Uh, Almost every time historically when the Fed has done this, they've done it – in such a way that the economy not only loses the inflation, but it actually the side effect of high unemployment right. is associated with a, a recession. Okay? okay, but one time during the '90s, the Fed was actually able to raise interest rates, stop the inflation, and the economy never entered a recession. And we called that period, we called that uh, a phenomenon, a soft landing. Um, for, you know, what it's worth, I I still think we have a really good chance of having a soft landing, that we're not going to fall into recession. But, you know, there are a lot of economists that keep pointing to uh, consumer spending is falling. If you look at um, the ISM manufacturing index, it has been near recession levels for many, many months. The leading indicators are falling. Um, and the yield curve is still inverted. There's all these signs that a recession should be occurring, but of course, I've been saying this and appearing on your show for the past year. Yeah, well, and no recession has showed up, and yeah. I'm, I'm hoping for the best.
0: You're not alone in that, by the way, and maybe you've already answered this question, but about that two percent target, one wonders. Then, does it matter how we get there?
2: Uh, well, you certainly. Um, wow, that's I've never heard it quite put that way. Does it matter? Uh and Are you thinking in terms of time or in terms of damage done?
0: Uh, maybe that. I'm wondering in terms of maybe what sector of the economy has to suffer enough to get us to 2%. Uh, it just seems like Fed's yeah. goal is to get to 2%. And then they say, oh, but we'll have a recession in the process. And I thought, well, hell yeah, that's what they've been saying all along. And while it has not happened... That almost seems to be the goal. So I'm wondering how we get to 2% if some people have to suffer more than others, does it matter? Or maybe the means by which we get to 2% durable goods, for instance, suffering will be so injurious to that sector of the economy that we'll wish we hadn't done it that way. Wow. Yeah
2: you're asking a really tough question in, in the that when the fed is trying to decide how they're going to raise interest rates they know for example that that housing is already in a, a recession so the housing market has been dramatically affected but mainly it has hurt the people you know when you look at um uh at the people in the sense that housing is now more expensive in terms of looking at the price looking at the financing of housing than i what i've seen it is the most expensive it has ever been in history and it is because prices remain relatively high because no one will sell their house when they have a three percent mortgage so this movement up of interest rates has really hurt mortgages has made the housing market almost impossible especially for young people to enter sure uh and but that's one of the side effects you would have when you had such low interest rates before. So, you know, like uh, when I was uh, uh, corresponding with uh, with Pete, I, w- I was saying that the Fed really is in a pickle. They They have certain things that they would want to do, and maybe one would be to try to do something to help the housing market. But they can't do that unless they're sure that inflation, in fact, has been beaten because several times in the past especially i have to go back pretty far to the 1970s the fed would see the disinflation occur inflation would go down they would then ease off on the on the interest rates and inflation would take off almost immediately again because people felt oh they've given up and so the fed has to decide when can i take my foot off the brake and it isn't clear yet the the this thing with the uh, the prices of durables makes it a little bit easier you know but service prices are still are
0: still pretty high and and food prices are still pretty high well, and people are about upset that. about well, those I, sure inflation is not an inherently bad thing we don't want de- deflation do we 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 oh no okay fair enough but then i'm just wondering When people say, oh, but groceries cost more than they do, and they may compare it to 2019, I'm thinking, well, over four years, you'd better hope that eggs and gas and shoes all cost more. Um, So I'm trying to, I guess, wonder if, in fact, 2.8% isn't a reasonable way for us to live. What's so sacred about 2%?
2: You know, uh, I've asked that question to several of my colleagues to try to figure out where did this 2% number come from? And nobody has a really good answer. Uh, There is no theoretical or historical reason why this magic number 2% uh, is in fact the number. What is most important is that the inflation rate rate is relatively stable and it is completely anticipated by the uh, people in the economy so they can adjust their wages and so forth Mm -hmm. to to live with with the higher prices. And if I can add one last historical piece, one of the best runs we ever had was in the uh, late 1990s where we had very low unemployment and we had very stable inflation that was not uh, not considered high at all, but it was almost exactly the number you said, 2.8. It was between 2.5 and 2.8. And as I remember, it, almost nobody had a problem with that, that the prices were creeping up at that particular speed. The 2% came after uh, the year 2000, where the Fed decided, well, we're going we're gonna to focus very explicitly on a target and we're going to set it at 2%. And again, I'm not exactly sure. Um, where that
0: number, that magic number, came from. I, I wanted to ask you about that. you mentioned it twice now, the 1990s, when we, in fact, managed to escape The jaws of this thing. And that's when Bill Clinton was president. And I wonder if that is instructive in some way or is that beside the point, Michael Miller? uh, Let's pick it up there in a minute. He's an economics professor at Western Washington University, long a professor of economics at DePaul University. Go into the WGN radio newsroom and get you another update on the market. Steve? Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the
3: day. Battery startup Nanograph has cut the ribbon on its new manufacturing facility in Chicago's West Loop. The company's developing materials for the next generation of lithium-ion batteries. The facility is the first large-volume silicon oxide facility in North America and was made possible through a $10 million Department of Defense contract. Nanograph says silicon oxide will help power longer-lasting batteries for electric vehicles and other devices. The facility will employ 35 people, and the company plans to expand to other parts of the U.S. North Chicago-based AbbVie will acquire Cerevel Therapeutics for $8.7 billion. Cerevel has multiple drugs in its pipeline that treat conditions like schizophrenia, Parkinson's disease and mood disorders. AbbVie says the addition of those drugs will complement drugs currently in its own portfolio. This is the company's second big deal in a week after it agreed to buy Immunogen for $10 billion. Immunogen makes a treatment for certain kinds of ovarian cancer.
4: I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Okay, now the business of food and Steve Alexander. mm mm-hmm thank you and let's take a look at the corn and soybean harvest in Illinois after i thank the chevy silverado and chevy com for sponsoring us today there's never been a better time to put a silverado in your toolbox who do we have on the phone
5: this is mark schloisener i'm the illinois state statistician for USDA NAS, the National Agricultural Statistics Service.
4: Mark is a numbers man, and what kind of numbers do you have about the corn and soybean harvest in Illinois?
5: In general, we had a really good season for getting things done early. Uh, for corn harvest, we track it until it reaches about 95% finished, and we had that on November 12, 95% finished. So I would think almost everybody was done with corn harvest before Thanksgiving. And for soybeans similar, we had it at 95% harvested across Illinois on November 5.
4: That was mainly because November was such a dry month, and those combines just kept rolling. How dry was it? Here's Brad Rippey, the USDA's meteorologist.
5: A few locations in the Upper Midwest that had their driest November on record.
4: There is, as you've probably heard in our forecast, something happening this weekend, though.
5: Could be a band of heavy, wet snow extending from, say, perhaps the East Central Plains on into the Upper Great Lakes region. That could be attended by high winds.
4: Okay, and back to Mark Schleisner, He has a message for farmers in Illinois.
5: You know, we're finalizing our yield numbers and our acreage numbers right now. We'll publish those results on January 12th. So I encourage all producers to respond to our survey and every individual response is confidential by law and exempt from the Freedom of Information Act.
4: Are Illinois farmers generally pretty good about responding?
5: In general, they do well. The agricultural surveys that we do get better response rates than almost all the other types of surveys that are done by other government and private industry organizations. Nice. The reports that we do help ensure that price swings are based on facts, like supply and demand, not just speculation.
4: Mark Schleisner, the Illinois state statistician, for the USDA. On the food calendar, it's National Cotton Candy Day, and it is not a food, but it is National Illinois Day today. You can celebrate eating a piece of pumpkin pie, the official state pie. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. We're talking to Michael Miller, economics
0: professor at Western Washington University, the professor emeritus at DePaul. He started us today talking a little bit about inflation going down, but um, maybe there are some things we need to be worried about, like the recession, which may loom. Although, Michael, I don't mean to misquote you here, but didn't you say you don't think we're going to have a recession based on what's happening right now?
2: I think the probability of recession is less than 50 uh, percent. I think that the, the strong labor uh, market is going to be what is going to save us. Uh, I think that labor is definitely weakening. That's one of the things that the Fed has to keep its eye on. Uh, We do see that the number of jobs being created is down, and and, uh, the JOLTS report shows there's fewer jobs available. But the labor market is still very strong, and it has been our ace in the hole to keep us from uh, falling into a recession much earlier. Mm -hmm. I think it just
0: might be what will save us. And there you were championing the Bill Clinton administration in the late 90s and how they were able to keep us from a severe recession.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, Bill Clinton, I, what I enjoyed, I liked about him, even though he and I are from different political parties. He um, he knew that, you know, early in the decade when he was uh, became president in 93, the economy had some problems. And he wanted to use the government to try to, you know, solve some of that to help the people out. But then, once the economy started to gr- to grow and to roar, he knew to get out of the way and to allow the economy to grow well. He also had a very competent uh, central banker in the in the form of Alan Greenspan. Uh, and two other things were also happening, which made it a little bit easier for things to work out in the nineties. One was. We were still living off of what I think they called it the peace dividend, the the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we had, relatively speaking, we had world peace. And the amount of money we had to put, for example, into military and so forth was down. And on top of that, one other thing was happening, and that is the advent of the personal computer that would change everybody's work life, which raised our productivity, which raised the amount of stuff produced, which made inflation... Um, less of a problem. So it was kind of a, a wonderful thing where a bunch of stuff came together. Uh, it, it's a uh, a perfect storm and opposite. It's a, it, it's a perfect, you know, utopia where we had productivity, we had good management of the economy through Alan Greenspan, and we had a president who said, let's allow capitalism to roar and I'll stay out of the way. I think that was a great combination.
0: What do you think the next challenge is? I've got about 45 seconds here, but what's sure. the next move by the Fed? I think the Fed will sit tight and they're
2: going to watch the data. Uh, one thing that I, uh, in those 45 seconds, one thing that the Fed is concerned about is that uh, Treasury yields, as uh, you report on the show, Treasury yields are falling even though the Fed hasn't lowered rates. And they're hoping that that will not undo the increases in rates that they did to keep the economy from overheating. So the Fed's going to have to decide when will be that point where we do we have to raise rates? I don't think so. When might we lower rates to, in other words, put off any chance of recession and know that inflation's under control? Uh, Some people are there about a 60 percent chance believe that that will be sometime in March. So we're, we're going to probably sit tight for the next uh, three or four months.
0: It's good to talk to you, Michael. Uh, continued uh, success up there. Enjoy the weather and uh, visit with us again in the near future. Uh, it'd be my pleasure, John. Anytime.